Brilliant. Well, hello. Um, Gary Chapman, in his famous book, The Five Love Languages, um, says that gift-giving is one of the key ways in which couples communicate and experience love for one another. And I would certainly say that's true for my wife, Amanda, and I. We both love giving and receiving gifts. But in 37 years of marriage, I've realized there's a subtle difference in uh, the way that we use our love language of gift-giving. For Amanda, if it's functional, it's not a gift. (laughs) I found this out the hard way the year I gave her a cutlery set for Christmas. It was beautiful, lovely wooden box, beautifully shaped, designed, knives, forks and spoons. Um, She was very gracious, but it was clear it wasn't actually pushing the right buttons in terms of that love language of gift giving. For Amanda, a gift is something extravagant. She's um, very kind with the gifts that I give her, but um, no, if it's functional, it's not a gift. I'm different. I love getting tools for Christmas. Uh, one year, Amanda bought me a power saw, Black & Decker power saw. I, I, I really appreciated the care and the thought she'd put in to getting me that, and I think of her every time I use it. And um, yeah, if it's useful, I love gifts that are useful. We are in our series where we're looking at what the Apostle Paul calls spiritual gifts. And we're basing ourselves in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 to 14, this brilliant letter that Paul has written to a church that he planted in the ancient Greek city of Corinth. And Paul tells us that these spiritual gifts are love gifts from the Holy Spirit to the church that as the church we are to eagerly desire. They operate in an atmosphere of love, which last week we heard spelt out beautifully in this amazing passage from 1 Corinthians 13. Paul says, follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts definitely fall into the category of being gifts for a purpose. And if you separate them from their purpose, that is when you get into trouble. Paul has spelt out for us what that purpose is. In 1 Corinthians 14, 12, he he tells us that they are to build up the church. Uh, He explains that they are to empower the church in the ministry that Jesus has given us. Jesus' marching orders to the church are daunting. He tells them at the end of his life, just before he ascends back into heaven after his resurrection, he says, now you go into all the world and you preach the good news and you make disciples, you baptize them, you teach them to obey everything that, um, that I've commanded. That's daunting, which is why when you read the same sort of uh, Jesus' parting words to his disciples as they're recorded in Acts chapter 1 verse 4 and 2 verse 7, Jesus tells them you wait, you wait until you receive power. I'm going to empower you to carry out this commission that I've given you. Jesus comes in a unique way. He brings in the kingdom of God back into a world that had fallen away and rejected him. He's bringing in his kingdom. 
But as he ascends back into heaven, he passes on that same ministry to his church. So that now the church, empowered by the Holy Spirit, is the agent of the kingdom of God spreading throughout creation. And the gifts of the Holy Spirit are given in order to enable us to fulfill that commission. Don't try and do it without them. You will fail. Now, just to remind ourselves, what are we talking about when we're talking about spiritual gifts? Well, Paul gives us several lists, and so do other New Testament writers. There are lists in 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Peter 4, Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 7, and Romans 12. These lists are very helpful. Uh, one thing to note from them is that none of them are identical. They all have things that are missed out of other lists, and uh, that tells you that none of them are exhaustive that the range and the variety of gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to his church are massive. And uh, we're all different. None of us are expected to have all the gifts. We need one another. That's a key message from this series that we're in. The other thing that we learn from these lists is that some of the gifts are what you might think of as extensions of our natural abilities. So you'll th see things like administration listed, or teaching, or hospitality, or generosity. Things which might come naturally to us, we might choose to do in our own strength, but somehow it seems that the Holy Spirit can empower those gifts so that they will have even greater impact than if we were just operating in our natural abilities. This shouldn't surprise us, when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we don't become puppets of the Holy Spirit. The Bible even describes the Holy Spirit as our helper. He comes alongside. We use our natural gifting, but he empowers it and extends it to greater impact and fruitfulness. But then there are other gifts that are listed that are clearly supernatural. You can't explain them in any other way. So miraculous healing would be one thing that is not an extension of a natural gift. Speaking in tongues, languages that we don't know ourselves and yet somehow the Holy Spirit enables us to use to praise God and to pray to God. Um, prophetic revelation, knowing things about God or about situations or even about people that we couldn't naturally know. Sadly, these Miraculous gifts have often been a battleground in church history. And that for long periods of church history, the dominant view in the church would be that these gifts were just for a very limited period of history, right at the beginning amongst those first generation disciples, and that they are not for us now. That would be the dominant view for long periods of church history. But then, at points in church history, it seems like there's been what we would think of as a move of the Holy Spirit, a reminding of the church of gifts and uh, truths that we had forgotten. One such of those moves that, that I remember very acutely, uh, because I was growing up as a teenager in the church at the time, occurred in the sort of late 70s, early 1980s, um, when there was huge upheaval in the church in this country, and around the world, and in the church that I was going to, as churches began to rediscover that spiritual gifts are for today. It led to great 
upheaval. Some churches split. Uh, some left their denominations. Some were thrown out of their denominations. At the same time, it was a time of great excitement. I remember it as a new vibrancy in worship just erupted. There was a fresh wave. I remember as a kid, we, we never seemed to sing hymns that were less than 100 years old. And then suddenly in this period, it seemed like new songs were being written every week. Our worship came alive. People began experiencing and exercising these spiritual gifts. Now, it hit me at a perfect time. I was in my rebellious youth. So I rebelled into God rather than out of God because, well, just I thank God for that often. But now the distinction doesn't seem to be quite so obvious. What we might call, uh, we use this word non-charismatic to describe churches that don't believe that spiritual gifts are for today. And charismatic churches would be churches that seek to use charismatic gifts from the Holy Spirit. But it seems like now the distinction is less clear than it used to be. Many non-charismatic churches have adopted songs and even the informal worship style that originally came up in the charismatic churches. And many charismatic churches have settled down. Things have become familiar so that you have churches that think of themselves as charismatic, but you don't often witness charismatic gifts of the Holy Spirit in their worship sometimes you can takes a while when you're in a church to work out whether it's charismatic or not Um, but the debate continues and it's really important that we are clear about what we think about whether or not spiritual gifts are for today the whole premise of this series that we're in is Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 14 1 where he says eagerly desire spiritual gifts How can you eagerly desire something unless you are convinced that it's available to you, that it's for you? And the passage that we come to today in our series is at the center of this debate. So, uh, because in this passage, there's no disputing it, Paul clearly says spiritual gifts will cease. So we better read it together, hadn't we? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 8, love never fails remember this follows that beautiful description of god's love earlier on in chapter 13 love never fails but where there are prophecies they will cease where there are tongues they will be stilled where there is knowledge it will pass away for we know in part and we prophesy in part but when completeness comes what is in part disappears When I was a child, I thought I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put away, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we will see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So Paul is teaching plainly that spiritual gifts one day will cease. Now we have to speak respectfully in this 
debate, in this trying to work out what is the Bible actually saying. There are people on both sides of this debate who love their Bibles. So we all have to agree, gifts will cease. The obvious question is, when? When will they cease? Well, thankfully, in this passage, Paul tells us. Verse 10, he says, when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. Other English translations of the Bible translate that when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. So the crucial question is, what is this completeness? What is this perfection that when it appears causes the imperfection to pass away? Now, I'm simplifying the debate because of time and because of the limits of my ability. But often, since what we call cessationalists, those who think that spiritual gifts have ceased, they believe when Paul is talking about completeness and perfection, he's talking about either the Bible or the church, or both. They see the spiritual gifts as a kind of kickstart that God in his grace gave to the church to get things underway in that first generation of disciples. The miracles, etc., proved that the apostles uh, were who they said they were and that they had authority to write Scripture. And so they would say, we no longer need these miraculous spiritual gifts because we have the Bible and because the church is mature. Now, this isn't a stupid view. Some very respectable people hold it. We don't dismiss it lightly. It's true the miracles did attest to who Jesus is and to who the early apostles were. In Matthew 11, for example, you can read about uh, John the Baptist's disciples coming to Jesus and saying, how can we be sure you're the Messiah? And Jesus' answer to them references his miracles. He says, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. And the good news is preached to the poor. Uh, So Jesus is using miracles to say these are the things that confirm who I am, who I say I am. Uh, The apostle Peter did the same thing on the day of Pentecost when he's preaching to that crowd in Jerusalem in uh, Acts 2.22. He says, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited to God by to you by God by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Similarly, the first apostles, they did have a special role. Uniquely through them, the scriptures came. And miracles did confirm and underline the authority that they had from God. So you can read about the Apostle Paul himself in uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 12, when he's defending, he's asserting, he's called us an apostle. He's saying the things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders, and miracles were done among you with great perseverance. So it's not an unreasonable thing to say these things, these miraculous signs did confirm who Jesus was, did confirm who the early apostles were. So what do we say in response to this? Well, we say yes, clearly Jesus had a unique ministry. He's the Messiah, 
There is only one, and it's him. He's the one who inaugurates, who brings in the kingdom of God into the world. But he clearly taught that there was going to be a continuity between the ministry that he had been given and the ministry which was passed on to the church with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit following his ascension back into heaven. So in John 20, 21, Jesus says, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. This mission continues. It's just now you are the agent of the kingdom coming. And in John 14, 12, Jesus says to his disciples, I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. Jesus' ministry continues through his church. And yes, the apostles did clearly have a unique and specific role in history. Writing scripture. But even in the very scriptures they're writing... They're pointing out that other people who were not, other disciples of Jesus, who were not called to be apostles, were exercising miraculous gifts. In uh, Acts 6 and Acts 8, it talks about Stephen and Philip, who were not apostles, exercising spiritual gifts. We can also say, thirdly, that uh, the scriptures that these apostles were writing have so much teaching on the use of spiritual gifts, it is very strange to think that the Holy Spirit is not preserving that teaching for the church today for a purpose. 1 Peter 4.11, Ephesians 4.11, 1 Corinthians 7.7, 7, Romans 12.6 and 8, and here in 1 Corinthians 12-14, to 14, so much teaching. Paul is plainly teaching in the passages we've been looking at in uh, these weeks that we are stirring one another in the use of spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. He says, Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. We'd also say there's an argument from common sense. Is the task any less challenging for us today? than it was for those first disciples. The Bible may be complete, but would you really describe the church as perfect? I wouldn't. I love the church. It's not perfect. Certainly when you, not, when you look at it around the world, so much that is bringing confusion and uh, discord. It's not in the first century and not now. So we can respect those with a different view from ours, and we must respect them. But we can respectfully disagree. I would say as well, it's tempting to conclude that the gifts are not for today. I've been tempted to conclude that. There's times when I've thought it would be so much easier to be a Christian if I didn't believe that the spiritual gifts were for today. When I've experienced disappointment, people who I've prayed with all my heart that I would see them healed and they've died of the cancer that they've had. When we don't see the accuracy in prophecy that we think we should in Scripture when sometimes what is bought is confusing or unclear. When we see spiritual gifts misused 
as I have and you may well have as well, when we see churches or individuals descending into foolishness, um, placing greater emphasis on prophecy than they do on Scripture and following things that plainly contradict Scripture. Much easier to say, well, let's just be done with it. Let's do away with it. We must never do that. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, 9, we know in part and we prophesy in part. He says in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with content. Test everything. Hold on to the good. We must always test prophecy. And the primary way we test it is against Scripture. If we're going to move in the prophetic revelations of God, we need to know our Bibles better, not, not worse, if we're going to keep things safe and accurate. I would plead with you, if this is your view, your feeling, don't miss the whole point of Paul's letter, the letter we're in. He's writing to a church where spiritual gifts are being misused, where all kinds of sin and error has come into the church, where there is foolishness. But take serious note, Paul never says stop. Paul says, well, let's just put, you clearly can't be trusted with them, let's put the spiritual gifts away. He brings correction. He reminds them what these gifts are for. They're not to make you look good. They are to build up the church, to fulfill its ministry. Remember how they are to use. And then he says, follow the way of love and eagerly desire them. He doesn't say back off. So when will, when is Paul telling us spiritual gifts will cease? What does he mean by when perfection comes? Well, let's see if we can work it out. Paul says in verse 12, Now we see but a poor reflection, as in a mirror. Then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, then I will know fully, even as I am fully known. Yeah, the, for context, you have to realize that the mirrors they used in those days weren't the sort of glass that you have in your, in your bathroom that gives you a perfect reflection of your face in all its glory. Uh, they were usually polished bits of metal. So you could get a general sense of your reflection, but there was a clear distinction between the reflection you saw in a mirror and the clarity with which you could see someone else's face. When will we see face to face? When will we know fully, even as we are fully known? Well, clearly, it's talking about when Jesus returns. An event which robust Christians think about often. Jesus is coming back. Paul teaches this is plainly earlier in 1 Corinthians 1, 7. He says, you don't lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He's saying you don't lack spiritual gifts while you wait for him to be revealed. This phrase face-to-face occurs many times through the Bible to talk about seeing God in the age to come. Famously, Revelation 22.4. We're talking about our existence in the new heavens and the new earth which Jesus will bring in with him when he returns. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There'll be no more night. They'll not need the light of a lamp 
or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Karl Barth, a famous theologian, says, because the sun rises, all lights go out. The darkest hour of human existence has passed. Jesus has died and been raised from the dead. His kingdom has come and is coming. Light is shining in the darkness. There is hope, but it's not yet fully day. We are still carriers of light, but walking in a dark world. One way of thinking about spiritual gifts, all analogies fall short somewhere, but there's help in this analogy. I think of spiritual gifts as like a torch that we carry in our hands in this dark world that illuminates the way ahead for us. Not perfectly, but helps us navigate, helps us understand what is going on around us, reveals to us something of the glory and the truth of God in a world of deception and lies. So valuable, so useful. Spiritual gifts are like torches given to us by the Holy Spirit to help us navigate through this age until Jesus return. We've not been left without comfort. We've not been left without guidance. But we only know in part, and we only prophesy in part. It's not daylight yet. It's why prophecy isn't equal to Scripture. It's why prophecy always has to be weighed against Scripture. When Jesus returns, it will be full daylight. What do you do with a torch when the sun comes up? You put it away. You don't need it anymore. Prophecy, speaking, in part, will pass away when we know fully. But while it's night still, we need them. We need to eagerly desire them. A diver doesn't say his oxygen mask is of little value because when he gets to the surface, he won't need it. He says, no, right now I need it. A lover trying to maintain a long-distance relationship doesn't despise phone calls and letters because one day they're going to be together. No, the lover says they, they value them all the more. That's the thing that is sustaining their love until that day when they can be together. We need every gift that the Holy Spirit gives us to fulfill the mission that God has given us and to worship God as he deserves. So let's eagerly desire them. Um, chapter 13 begins with this Beautiful description of God's love that we were looking at last week. And then it describes spiritual gifts as God's provision for a season until his return. And then the chapter concludes with these beautiful words. It says, these three remain, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. I think it's a beautiful verse. It's got beautiful promises for us. What's special about these qualities, faith, hope, and love? Well, I think about faith and hope for a moment. They are future-looking. They are future-focused. They bring all the benefits of the future into the present now so that we can enjoy them now, even the ones we haven't fully received yet. Hebrews 11:1 1 says, Faith is the evidence of things hoped for, 
the substance of things not seen. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 7 that uh, now we're walking by faith, then we will walk by sight. So we might think of faith and hope and love as, as things that will are for now, or faith and hope in particular as things that are for now, and we won't need them in the age to come because then we will have the thing that we hoped for. But here's a wonderful truth that sort of hit me afresh as I was preparing today's sermon. Life for us, eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth, will still be marked by the knowledge of God's future goodness to us. Even though we've received it fully then, there'll still be anticipation of what is to come rolling out before us in the eons to come. I think this is glorious. So while in one sense faith is swallowed up by hope, in another sense our faith will continue to deepen and grow in anticipation of God's goodness to us getting ever deeper. We'll delight to plumb its depths more and more through all eternity. I think this is wonderful. Hope too. Eternity will be characterized by anticipation of deeper and deeper revelations of God's goodness. In the new heavens and new earth, God's goodness won't just be behind us. It will be around us and it will still be in front of us. Vast, unfolding throughout all eternity. Why is love the greatest of them all? Because the Bible tells us plainly, God is love. God is the object and foundation of our faith hope, and hope now and through all eternity. Isn't that wonderful? Paul says love will remain. This is glorious. One day the spiritual gifts won't be needed. One day they won't be needed. Paul tells us that plainly. The love that they give us a glimpse of now will be our comfort constantly and our reality. But we're not in that day yet. And if you're someone who loves Paul's description of God's love in 1 Corinthians 13, if you agree that God's love trumps everything if you love the description that paul gives in 1 corinthians 13 and when you get to the end of that description when you get to the end of chapter 13 please turn the page in your bible and start reading the next chapter follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts God bless you.